Hey, John, how are you doing? Hi, Dan. I clicked on the Lincoln, then I didn't notice the start button, and so I sat there for a while going, huh, I wonder, just talking, just talking to dead air. Well, you made it. That's what counts. Yeah, that's what counts. So how's everything way up there in, uh, in Seattle? Oh, well, it's cold here, Dan. Yeah, how cold? How cold? Well, it's it set a record yesterday. Oh, really? Two degrees or something like Whoa, that. Wow, that's ten degrees colder than it is here today. That's um, that's no good. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> I mean, for Texas, thirty-two is like shocking, but you're that thirty-two for you is just like um, a cooler day. Yeah, twenty-two though. But twenty-two. Ooh. Yeah, look out! Ooh. There's snow on the ground, and it's the kind of snow that's not even intentional snow. Like it's not. It's not like. It's not like God said, let it snow. It was just some condensation in the air that had no other choice but to turn right. to snow and fall. Ah. Because the humidity up here, a lot of people don't know this, the humidity up here averages about 98%. Oh, so is that because the, it's frequently rainy? or it's just it, There's just, just water. It, the air is is mostly water up here all the time. But it doesn't register as humidity because it... It's generally not in the context of cold or warm. So mm. it's just, when it's cold, it just it just sort of is clammy. And when it's warm, it's, yeah, it's sort of a, a warm embrace. But you, you don't notice how, how, I hate to use the word, but it's moist up here. But now. Yeah, that's not a favorite word among people people don't like it i have a friend that really doesn't like the word and it is it the you think it's a concept of it that they don't like or do you think that it's um something else just the you know like the sound of the word is the concept is it that they can't you know i don't i I, personally i don't know i I don't understand why i hear a lot of different explanations oh i don't like it because of what it means what it sounds like Mm -hmm. all these things but it's just it's just a word there are so many so many grosser words yeah entrails that's a gross word haggis Her- terrible both for what it stands for and how it sounds john vanderslice had an album called cellar door because is that a real name john vanderslice yes it's, it sounds made up i mean i've heard it a lot i just always assumed it was real but it does sound it does sound fabric. It's Dutch, and and the Dutch the Dutch seem like maybe they're not real. They aren't. I think they are, but van in That's Dutch is like von in German. V a u g h n. No, v o n. Like oh, just von, like of or from. yeah, right. But but like uh, it's aristocratic. So it's Vanderslice is van der slice from the slice. Mm. Of the slice. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. But he has an album called Cellar Door because he claims that it's one of the most beautiful sounding phrases in the English language. As that's a famous thing. He didn't he didn't invention invent that. Right. That's a known that's a known but thing. But I don't think so. Cellar door. I don't I don't like it. I, I don't like it, in fact. It's not only not a, not only do I not think it's beautiful, but I don't I don't prefer it cellar door keep it 
I'd rather hear more. The New York Times, Jean, has <laughs> has an article all about this. And um, it says the fantasy writer J.R.R. Tolkien, who you may have I'm heard of. I'm familiar with his work. It says, who was also a phil- uh, philologist, yes. might well be... Uh, okay, he says, he mentioned the idea of cellar door's special beauty in a speech in 1955 and is often given credit for it. Hmm. Other supposed authors abound. The story is tangled, but Tolkien at least can be ruled out as the originator. He was, after all, just 11 years old in 1903 when a curious novel called G-Boy, which also alludes to the aesthetic properties of Cellar Door, was published by Shakespeare scholar Cyrus Lauren Hooper. Hooper's narrator writes of the title character, he even grew to like sounds unassociated with their meaning and once made a list of words he loved most. As doubloon, squadron, thatch, fanfare, sphinx, pimpernel, caliban, setabos, carib, susero, torquette, and youngfrau. Hmm. I like squadron. I think squadron's a wonderful word. Cellador. And didn't they talk about cellar door in um, Donnie Darko? You know, this is the second Donnie Darko reference I've seen today. Yeah. Uh, which. On Omnibus, we call the uh, Bader-Meinhof syndrome. We didn't invent that, but we did an episode on it, which is, you know, the, the um, wait a minute, I just, how many Donnie Darko references are you going to get in a day? Presumably mm-hmm. none. If you see one, you're like, huh, huh, what do you know? Look at that. But I was researching The Boy in the Bubble, the mm. John Travolta television movie of the 1970s, the uh, wasn't that based on a true story? And I always conflate the boy in the bubble with the Cisco, the Crisco kid. Remember the Crisco kid? Crisco kid. I know the Cisco kid. No, the Crisco kid. Yeah. Um, was a. This is also, I believe, it was a documentary movie. And the boy in this movie. Let's just let's find it. And um, apparently, Johnny Cash was in this movie. Crisco. It is about a ten-year-old boy with a crippling skin disease. Mm. And um, I'm looking for more on this because this is one of those weird things, like like from our childhood times, where if you drink Coke and you eat Pop Rocks at the same time, your stomach explodes, and that's what happened to Mikey. But like, there was this was the thing where they used to. There it is. Here it is. Here it is. Ten-year-old boy dies after a lifelong fight against a rare disease. And this is an archive of an article that came out in the New York Times in 1981. It says, um, at the age of 10, Michael Hammond was finally going to start school this week, but Michael, who had to be covered with vegetable shortening each day to ease the pain of his rare skin disease, died before he had the chance. His skin was so fragile that a touch could cause infection and a hug was out of the question. His mother once said she feared that he would not know he was loved, but the boy, the subject of much public attention, told a reporter last year, lots of people love me, adding with a grin, I love everybody. Oh. He had a disease called epidermolysis bullosa, which is an incurable disease that causes blisters and sores to erupt on the body. And the nurses nicknamed him Crisco Kid because of the only treatment that helped two cans of the vegetable shortening applied to his skin daily. This is way worse than saying the word moist over and over. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, yeah. you read about yeah. this guy the other day that ate some old Chinese food and had to have his legs amputated. I did not read oh, this. It, this is the thing about the news, Dan. I, I, uh, I've started reading the news. I'm very curious about the invasion of, of um, Ukraine. 
Yes, that is a big deal happening today. And so I've been reading the news lately, and um, unfortunately, the news is garbage. Actually, oh, this is wonderful. I got a uh, I got an email that said, as a journalist, we'd like you to fill out this this survey of journalists that we're conducting here for the Rand Corporation or the Pew Society or something. You know, it was it was some journalism. Uh, watchdog group that I recognized. And so I said, Oh, as journalist, I will fill out your thing. And it was, you know, a half hour long survey. How, how do you feel about the state of journalism today? And I really ripped them a new one. All of the journalists speaking as a journalist. Yes. Um, so I'm reading the, uh, and I, and part of it is that this is the news, right? I'm, I read two articles about the Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine minus the, the, mm-hmm. yeah, because we can't, it doesn't, it sounds naked without the the, yeah. and I don't, but the thing is they, we've talked about this a while a back and I think like if you said, oh, do you live in the United States? I would say, yeah, of course I do. And if they said, do you live in United States? I said, I would say, well, you mean the United States. Well, because you're talking about multiple states that are That's united. That's true because it's plural. Right. And whereas if, if you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, you know, do you live in the Canada? No, you would say, do you live in Canada? Mm, so it's Ukraine, but I think it's, <laughs> but only to troll them and they won't say anything about it. But if you, if you were to say just the Ukraine, that sounds good. It does. But saying Ukraine by itself sounds weird because I think it's the, the vowel sound and you almost want to put a the in front of something like you wouldn't say the Russia, but you would say the Ukraine. And why do they dislike the Ukraine? Why do they dislike it? It makes it seem more like more formal. The King has arrived. It's. The king has now left the building. The Ukraine is here. Well, it's actually very salient to the current problem because the Russians would love us to call it the Ukraine because it means that it's a region of the greater Russo sphere of influence, right? It's like the desert or the Appalachians, the Mississippi basin you know it becomes if you put a the in front of it it takes away its nationhood and makes it, it just uh just a kind of and and the reason we call it the ukraine is during the soviet union era it was just a part of soviet russia and we called it the soviet union so the ukraine was just sort of like a it was a uh what was it it was an affect of a kind of Knowledge of the geography of Europe, meaning that it was the Ukrainian uh, plateau or like, you know, the great, the great plains. And when they became an independent nation, they were like, we're not, we're not the anymore. We're Ukraine, a country like Poland. And it was very hard for me to, to relearn kind of like, you know, my mom, it took her a long time to not say Rhodesia, you know, because <laughs> what you, you spend 40 years saying Rhodesia and then all of a sudden there is no Rhodesia. Right. It's hard to do. It's just as it's going to be hard for me to refer to the Confederate States of America once they're reestablished instead of just saying the South. But, uh, but that, so then I started getting uh, letters from people in Ukraine saying, please don't say the Ukraine. And I, and I, so I beat it out of myself because, because I did, I did understand an independent Ukraine is important 
and also if you're trying to establish the nationhood of your you know of your people you don't want people in the west saying things like ha ha the ukraine a subset of russia anyway i uh i'm reading about it but then i get into the news and the news dan is actually like three lines uh putin invades ukraine uh, something, 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 coronavirus. And then it immediately starts into baby boy found in a freezer in Arkansas. Mm. Mother, you know, uh, kept in a dark closet with handcuffs on. Husband arrested. And then even worse, like Florida man sets himself on fire. And the, then that's the rest of the news. And, and and it's page after page of it. And in one of the events was... uh you know, college kid eats old Chinese food, perfect storm of infection causes his entire body to shut down. He has both his legs amputated and all his fingers, but he survived due to, you know, a miracle team. And it's just like, yep, I just feel so much better having read it. But I, I was reading about the boy in the bubble who was a real boy that had a complete failure of his immune system such that any exposure to anything could have uh, caused him to, you know, get an infection and die. And in fact, he did only live to be 12 years old, but there was a TV movie by John Travolta or starring John Travolta in the seventies, which I remember watching, but then incredibly there was a, I guess, comedy movie called bubble boy starring Jake Gyllenhaal (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that came out the same year as Donnie Darko. Oh no. And the studios thought Donnie Darko was garbage and it was going to be straight to video movie, but Bubble Boy was going to make him a star. God. And then Donnie Darko, they were like, well, maybe we should give it a limited release or whatever. And it became a cult classic. And Bubble Boy was a critical and commercial disaster, almost torpedoing. Jake Gyllenhaal's career. Well, how would I know reading that non-news, an example of a thing that I pilloried in this, in this journalism review that I did said, said exactly this. Why is this news? This, this so does not qualify as news. How did this even end up here? How am I even looking at it? Oh, the other thing that's in my newsfeed because they try and tailor it to me. Every time Keith Richards says anything, it's like front page news. Keith, Keith Richards farted in a glass. And I'm like, I don't, there's never a reason for me to know what Ted Nugent said. I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. Anyway. And then you make a Donnie Darko reference. It's just like, yeah. what's going on? You know, you can count on me to make a Donnie Darko. It, I'm, I'm con I'm, I am in a constant state of suppressing a Donnie Darko reference. Hmm. If you think about that, I'm all just like the Hulk is always a little angry. That's how Bruce keeps him under control. I'm always suppressing a Lebowski or Donnie Darko or 1986 Jeff Goldblum, the fly Mm. uh, reference or the shining reference. Did you? Oh, I, I was reading about the shining yesterday because I went on a crazy. So we're watching the Muppet show. We watched the Muppet show. Paul Simon episode. Uh, then, and and <laughs> and we ate it up, classic. ate it up, and then at yeah. the end, I wanted to surprise my daughter, so I found a um, found a picture of Paul Simon 
on his wedding day to Carrie Fisher. And I said, you know, here's another thing that you know about Paul Simon. And she was like, what? I don't know anything about Paul Simon. And then I showed her the picture and we had a, we had a wonderful laugh about, um, about the fact that he was married to Princess Leia. Like, what are the chances, right? If, you, if you're looking at the Muppet show with Paul Simon, you, the last thing you think is like, this guy, he's going to marry Princess Leia. So then I'm on a Paul Simon deep dive, and I, I discovered that in the 1970s, he was in a two-year-long live-in relationship with Shelley Duvall. Yes. So then I'm on a Shelley Duvall thing. Now you see, now you're back into the show. She was, I, I have a thing for Shelley Duvall, uh, young, young Shelley Duvall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always have, and despite the fact that, you know, she would, the Popeye movie, I can look past that. Yeah. Uh, but everything else that she was in as a, a young person, I think, um, pretty outstanding. I don't know why. I don't think she was meant really to be thought of in as a sex symbol in a lot of the roles that she was cast in. But I think, I think for people who think she's, you know, cute, there's no, that's just how it's going to be. Well, you know, she's very cute in Brewster McCloud. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Shelley Duvall, Paul Simon's five foot three, Shelley Duvall is five foot nine. But in all, so the other day I found in my basement as I was unpacking boxes, this enormous coffee table book I bought, uh, with pictures from Studio 54. It's yeah. one of those Tashin books that like, you can barely lift. And you open it up, and it's got the whole story of Studio 54 from, you know, from when they were building it out all the way to the end, and all these wonderful pictures. And there are these pictures of Shelley Duvall dancing with Paul Simon. And you know, she's not just uh, tall, but willowy. Mm. And, and Paul is, you know, 5'3", is, is diminutive for a man, and he was very self-conscious about it. And so you can see in the picture, oh, here they are together. And she's, she, she looks even taller than she is because she's so willowy. And he looks smaller than he is because he's grimacing. But, he, but they're in a love relationship. You know, they obviously loved each other very much. It's irrelevant. But Paul's very conscious because he sees his pictures around the world. And so... All of a sudden, I realized I went and looked at the, at the, uh, you know, at the at the Simon and Garfunkel pictures, and my whole life I assumed that Art Garfunkel was six foot five, and mm. that was what made it funny, right? The Paul right. Simon's little and and Art is like this giant of a man, and Sean Nelson and I always, he's six five and I'm six three. It's not like he towered, but Sean looked a lot like Artie. And it was always kind of the joke every band he was in. He kind of towered over everybody else in Harvey Danger or whatever, and he had the big shock of hair. And I actually stood pretty close to Art Garfunkel once. He was talking to Mayor Bloomberg, and I was performing in Central Park with Amy Mann, and we were doing Simon and Garfunkel covers, and Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel were there, and the mayor was there. It was a big deal. And it was the first time Amy and I ever did anything. It was like we met backstage at a show because I had covered one of her songs and she turned, it turned out she was in the venue. And she came in and saw me play. 
her tune, cover one of her tunes. Cool. And then she came. Is that kind of weird? It like have that and that person in the audience kind of staring. Well, I didn't know they were. I didn't know she was there. I'm. I, mm. I was playing at Largo. I was opening. That's better. I would. It was think, much better. To not know. <laughs> I was opening for um for this record that Ben Gibbard and uh oh, who did he do that record with? Hang on. It's it's just absolutely. I'm spacing it. It's a guy I know. I know well, and the record was called "One Fast Move and I'm Gone," and it was with Jay Farrar from from Sunvolt. So Jay and Ben are have this band. They're playing this record that they wrote using Jack Kerouac lyrics. That that okay. that was good only because Ben is good at writing songs and Jay is good at singing them. And I'm playing, uh, I'm doing this whole tour, and it was kind of a bad tour, frankly. But I'm playing this Amy Mann cover because Largo is like a place that she was famous for performing there. And I get off the stage, and the the guy that runs Largo comes running up and is like, you know. Amy's here and saw your tune. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like cold sweat kind of thing, you know? And I'd kind of fucked it up because it was a little out of my range. I didn't transpose it. And then after the show, she comes backstage and she's like, you fucked up my song. And I was like, yeah, I did. (laughs) Was that the first thing she said (laughs) to you? And she was with Michael Penn, (laughs) who's also, you know, intimidating or for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, I don't, I totally didn't." She was like, "No, it was great because it was pretty good." And this was an example. I think I've I've probably talked about this somewhere before, but this was an example. What was great about Twitter at the time, early two thousand tens. The next day, she tweeted at me, and because it was early Twitter, I tweeted back at her, and pretty soon we're tweeting at each other, and then pretty soon we're DMing. And then she's like, here's my number. And then we're texting and then we're friends. And I don't know, a few weeks later, she said, hey, I got invited to do this uh, this Simon and Garfunkel tribute in Central Park. Do you want to do a song with me? I don't know. It, it might have been months later. And I was like, well, yeah. And she was great. Great. You know, and I and. I'd, I'd been playing uh, Only Living Boy in New York for years. She suggested that tune. And I was like, I know mm. the song. Flew to New York. We played the song. I introduced her that night to Hodgman and Jonathan Colton. And now she and Jonathan, you know, over the course then of a few years, established a collaboration. He wrote a couple songs on her record. She's a, She's been on the Joko Cruise for I don't know, six years now. So it was a time when Twitter still felt, I would never have gotten to know her if it weren't for Twitter, right? Because I meet people backstage or met people backstage at the time all the time. In the old days, you meet people all the time. Oh, it's John Doe. Hey, nice to meet you. But it's not like I'm going to get his number. And it's not like he's going to ask for mine. We never saw each other again. You know, actually we did, John Doe and I, but like I met David Byrne. It's not like we exchanged phone numbers. 
And it's not like I did with Amy, except for Twitter. They were wonderful times, those halcyon days. The salad days. But I've been that close to Art Garfunkel. He's standing next to Mayor Bloomberg, who's not that tall. Mm -hmm. And Artie wasn't that tall. And I, I was just far enough away from him that it didn't really, it didn't really, I didn't put it all together. And he's older now. But so last night I'm like, wait a minute, is Art Garfunkel 6'5"? I looked it up. He's 5'9". Art Garfunkel. He's not even that tall. Art Garfunkel, the super tall big right. dude. We're gonna, he and I are going to see eye to eye when we were standing there together. 5'9". Yeah, he's 5'9". He only was he only was able to see over the top of Paul's head because Paul's 5'3". And Artie rubbed Paul's nose in it. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there like, Paul didn't deserve it. No, he did not. And I couldn't get my head around it. Like, from the time I was five years old, because we had that, you know, we had that record and on eight-track tape, and it had their picture on the cover, and I just had it in my mind. Paul Simon was a was a regular sized, maybe slightly diminutive person, and Artie was this this grotesque giant. But Artie could be wearing a top hat, and I could still look over it. But Shelley Duvall, well, of course, I got off on a Shelley Duvall kick, and you know, sometimes I got to admit, I go look for the, I look for like, the pictures of of movie stars when they were at their young prime their, their peak the prime yeah. yeah maybe not their creative peak but like you know wow here's whatever N- name name an actor or an actress there's always a picture of them in the very you've seen those those pictures of clint eastwood when he's talking on the phone and he just he looks like a surfer it's all it's it's fun i'm looking at pictures of shelly duvall and then of course you end up at the shining and then unfortunately with her, I guess she kind of lost the plot somewhere. Yeah, you know, I actually was just reading. It's so funny because you're like a week ago, I was just reading about all of this. The Shelley Duvall and thing. The Shelley Duvall thing. And she, what happened was she went on to um, do, the Dr. Phil show. I don't know if you've seen this interview or not, but she went on the Dr. Phil show and it was very clear through this interview that she was not in her right mind yeah. that she was, I didn't see um, this, but I, but I read about this. You heard about yeah. it. You don't need to see it. It's not, it's just somebody who's clearly not in a good place mentally, uh, just talking. So he got a lot of bad, I guess, press about it or received a lot of flack about it because they were saying that he, I guess, took it, sensationalized someone's mental illness. Now, I didn't get that from the interview when I saw it. I saw I saw Dr. Phil being Dr. Phil and interviewing someone who used to be a famous actress and is now has mental problems. And I think he was legitimately from the my interpretation of it, the way that I interpreted it was that he was interested in helping her and in understanding her and learning more about her. So I don't I don't know. I'm not defending him, but it just didn't it didn't seem that he needed the vilification that he received from it. But in, in any case, um she's was definitely not 
in a good place. And I, um, I found that to be very interesting. And cause we always have this idea, at least I do, you probably don't. And I would say you probably don't because you're more, hmm, because you are kind of a, um, a, 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 you know, performer, a celebrity mm-hmm. type person mm-hmm. that you have a, a different kind of perspective and awareness of this kind of thing. And so I think though, for a lot of normies, um, I think when you see something like that, you assume, well, like they were an actor in the seventies, they must be like super rich now. They're like super rich and they, uh, you know, they like, they, they have no problems and they're, they're fine. And in reality, like people can be at poverty level, even if they were famous. And, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I think finding out that she wasn't doing great kind of bummed me out because, you know, like I liked her work so much as a, uh, as a youngster. Right. And I, and she was, she didn't have that thing where <clears throat> as she got older, she, dropped out of Hollywood because she couldn't get work. She was working as a producer and making all kinds of things happen. And then she was just like, mm-hmm. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I was, I don't know what your relationship to Britpop is. Close. You have a close relationship with Britpop? Very close. Yeah. we get along pretty well. I was doing a little bit of Britpop reading the other day. Um, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what sparked it. Uh, because I don't really, I don't really follow um, the Britpop trades that closely. But I think what happened was I was reading some non-news item, and somebody made a tossed-off reference to "Don't look back in anger," and I said, "Don't look back in anger." I know that was a big hit for Oasis, but I don't like Oasis. I never liked Oasis. And I don't know if I could pick that song out of a haystack. And mm-hmm. so I did a little don't look back in anger looking around. And it it had been voted by some bunch of dumb clucks at the NME. Like the greatest not song, not only of Britpop, but like one of the greatest British songs ever. And there's a huge gap between American and uh, British music fans that most of the time you're not aware of, right? Because we all love David Bowie and we all love or loved Led Zeppelin Mm -hmm. and the Beatles and lots of bands and singers. Everyone loves Adele. There's not a living soul that doesn't. But people in Britain like Blur and people in America have never heard of Blur. Mm -hmm. Nobody in America has heard of Robbie Williams, right? So there are these things. And then, of course, there are lots of American bands that no one in England cares about. Did you ever hear the Bon Jovi Van Halen story? The Bon Jovi Van Halen story. The Bon Jovi Van Halen story as regards I feel like the no, UK. I'm going to say no. Bon Jovi made a real point to um, tour in the UK and promote 
his records, and I guess his record company played a big role in it, to tour and, and, and play big shows in the UK during his heyday. And Van Halen made no attempt to penetrate the, the United Kingdom. And I don't know whether it was that they didn't, they didn't understand the kind of Southern California uh-huh, kind of music. <laughs> that is very good. Thank you. Nice Van Halen there. But, um, oh, I read a thing. Who was it? Oh, it was, it was, uh, I read an interview with, <laughs> today is a weird day. I don't know what's happening to my brain. I'm not, I'm not getting it. Um, it was a Billy Idol's guitar player. Okay. Again, a guy I know really well but i keep i keep trying to say billy cox but it's not billy cox who played with Jimi hendrix it is uh all right it's gonna come to me i'm not gonna look it up i oh god he's right there anyway i was reading an interview with him and he said that one time he because he played on a michael jackson track on on some tune from you know, smooth criminal era, Michael Jackson. And he said at one point, Michael Jackson did a spot on impression of David Lee Roth. Really? And, and he, he went on about it. He was like, you know, I just couldn't believe I'm the only person in the world that's standing in this moment, watching Michael Jackson, like do an extended David Lee Roth impression. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it made me then spend the rest of the day imagining Michael Jackson doing David Lee Roth. But the point is that that Van Halen didn't didn't tour in England. And so in the 80s when Van Halen was arguably like the biggest band in America in the early 80s, they opened for Bon Jovi in the UK. And to this mm. day, Bon Jovi is an enormous stadium rock act in the UK, and Van Halen, no, no love. And the same is true over here for a lot of those Britpop bands. Well, I went and I listened to Don't Look Back in Anger, and it is the mushiest pile of wet oats that you could, that you could put on an album. And admittedly, the chorus, when it comes in, at least the first half of the chorus, you go, oh, that's a good key change. Like, yeah, I get it. Sure. I see why this was on the radio. It has a chorus. There's no arguing. But everything else about it, the tempo, the lyrical content, the, the verse melodies, the whole attitude of it, it just is, it just is, it exemplifies what I find objectionable about oasis which is everything i don't like anything about them no i don't hate them but in honor of mark lanigan who recently passed who also hates oasis or the gallagher's or or at least the one gallagher i'm gonna i'm gonna plant a flag today but then Then I was like, that's the number one Britpop song? I beg to differ. The number one Britpop song is clearly Common People by Pulp. The, great, the only 
the greatest Britpop song. And I watched Common People. And although, I watched the video, I mean, and although the the mix of Common People is very 90s, it still stands as a great song. And then I noticed a weird thing, which I think I'd noticed before, which is that Sean Nelson of Harvey Danger was clearly very influenced by Jarvis Cocker. I knew that he was, but I had never watched the video closely enough to realize that a lot of Sean's mannerisms in his own music videos and Sean, you know, Flagpole said it came out in 98 and common people came out in 95, I guess. If you watch the Harvey danger videos, you can see many indications that Sean watched the common people video 1000 times <laughs> because Jarvis Cocker has just this kind of effortless lanky grace and the whole tone of common people is is so perfect because Jarvis is very elegant you would look at him and say he's posh he's posh he has all the elements that would make a person posh but the sentiment of the song is very working class and there's no, you know the the uh the people in the united kingdom love to bag on posh people even though they s somewhat worship posh people and they love to elevate the working class, even though the working class is an enormous pain in the ass. And they love more than anything somebody that looks and acts posh but is working class. Or looks and acts working class and is posh, like the Beastie Boys. Right. Yeah. Okay, I see that. So here's Jarvis Cocker, and he's just swanning in this music video. And... You know, he's got these sort of effeminate hand gestures, but he's doing it. There's irony in it. And I could see like, oh, this it, this song connected with Sean, not just because of Jarvis Cocker's like swanning elegance, but also because how do you capture that lightning in a bottle? I'm beautiful and I'm talking about other beautiful people with a sneering sort of smugness but it's also really like really compressed like subtle you'll never you wouldn't see it right he, Jarvis Cocker could be at a party as he describes in the song and totally pass but also like kind of awarding himself the little badge of being like a working class guy it's Britpop's finest moment except for then all of a sudden, coming in contention for the best song of Britpop, Bittersweet Symphony. Mm -hmm. And Bittersweet Symphony had that famous story. You're, you're familiar with the story. of I'm, I don't know that I am. Please tell me. So the sample that drives the song Bittersweet Symphony... Dun, 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 oh dun, yeah, dun, that dun, comes dun, from. I was just dun, teaching. I was teaching. One of the things I love to do with my boy, he's fourteen, 
is I'll, we'll be listening to a song and I'll tell them, oh, you know, this is a cover. Mm-hmm. Or I'll say, this is a sample from some other thing. And we just did that one last week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, pl- I was playing it for him and he was listening to it. And I was like, you know the song that this one's used in because I was playing the original. And he's like, I think I do. And I played it and he's like, they can just do that. That's the whole song. He's like, that's the whole song. I'm like, yeah, they can do that. And they did that. Well, the sample was taken from an orchestral cover record of Rolling right. Stones songs. Right. And the Verve got permission to use the sample, but they didn't get permission to cover the Stones. And it and that only came up after the record had been released and the Stones' evil 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 manager Alan Klein said to the Verve and their record label, "You don't have permission to do this cover, and so you're either going to give us 100 percent of the songwriting royalties, or you got to take it out. You got to, mm-hmm. you got to. We're going to quash it. You know, you got to take all those records out of the stores. And the record was just shooting up the charts. And like dumbasses, the Verve." And their management team didn't play chicken with him. They were like, okay, 100% of the songwriting royalties. And it's such bullshit. The, the stone, the, there's no sample of the stones on there. Right. So Mick and Keith spent 20 years getting all the songwriting royalties. That would have made Richard Ashcroft a, a millionaire. And Richard Ashcroft would be living in a, you know, on an aircraft carrier now. That was covered in velvet because that's one of the great songs of the nineties. No, it all went to Mick and Keith and Ashcroft was like such an English, like, Oh, I don't care. I don't, it doesn't matter to me that he just, you know, he just sort of like blithely agreed to these terrible terms because he was too cool to stand up for himself. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm reading along this non-news. Meanwhile, the Russians are invading Ukraine. Bombs are going off in Kiev. And I'm like, tell me more, Richard Ashcroft, about how you were too cool to get your money. Apparently, just the other year, the Stones finally turned over the songwriting royalties, the publishing, to Richard Ashcroft. After 20 plus years, 25 years probably. And I don't think they gave him all the money back. I think they were like, from here on out, every time they play this song at a, at a bachelor party, you know, you'll get your two cents. It's still going to make him rich because that song's everywhere. But let me ask you, hmm. I was thinking as I was reading about Shelly Duvall living in her truck in West Texas. Yeah. I could go visit her. You could. She's right over there. Yeah. <clears throat> I was also thinking about Richard Ashcroft. Is he living in his truck somewhere? And then I looked up what Jarvis Cocker's been doing, and he's got like a weekly radio show. Now I know he's. Yeah. Well, I mean, I often wonder about that. Like, are they doing it because they want to do it, or doing it because it's fun? Are they doing it because they need the the cash from it? Like, I know it's none of my business to know, but like, I love the idea of thinking 
that these people who are like yesterday, I was thinking about Tom Waits because mm. we were listening to some Tom Waits. We we're listening to uh, what's he building mm-hmm. and the ocean. Mm-hmm. Two of his sort of spoken word sort of what's he building in there? Yeah, this sort of a mystic uh, kind of legendary Tom Waits stuff. And and I was thinking about like like what's he up to? You know, because I think we were we were watching Dracula, which he's in. And then he's also in Buster Scruggs. And, you know, you just kind of wonder, like, is he working because he wants to work? Is he doing it because he needs the money? Is he, how's he living? How's he living? Well, and his nose What's is he large. up to? Does, does he just have, like, does he have a house somewhere? Is it like a haunted house? You know, or is he like in some like downtown condo like in L.A.? I think you get to wonder I think that. he does I have a house. Things. And I think, he, I think his wife is also very accomplished. I read something about them, some other non-news about Tom Waits and his wife, and I don't remember why. But you know some rich people. Mm-hmm. Couple. And I think, there's a, I think there's a thing about people that have had success that it's, not, it's often not enough to, and I don't mean like spiritually not enough. I mean, just look at my own music career. If you took all the money I made in music, Mm-hmm. It is not as much as I've made in podcasting. And the first five years right. that I was in podcasting, I worked for free. Mm-hmm. Which is weird. And yeah. and I think, think about all the bands that weren't as big as the Long Winters. Right. And then think about all the bands that are bigger than the Long Winters, but didn't have any songs on the TV. You know, I think when the new pornographers go out and tour... It's because they need the money. I mean, when Bob Dylan goes out, it's not because he needs the money. But Bob Dylan's also legendary status. Yeah. And a a lot. I'm more interested in people who are less than legend. Like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not interested in how much wealth Barbara Streisand has. She has a lot of wealth. Yeah. Because it's, of course, she does. It's it's irrelevant at this point. Yeah. I'm more interested in, in the people who are like, you've heard of them. Right. But they were not like, you know, f- filling stadiums every single week for years. Well, and I think, you know, I like think, not that level. I think Pulp was filling stadiums, at least in the UK. But he's got a weekly radio show now. Like, I know that can't pay very much. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, probably not. You know, you think about things. Joe Rogan's worth however many millions or got some big deal from Spotify, but most people on the radio are just making some money. You know, they're just, it's mm-hmm. just a job. Mm-hmm. There was this weird side article where apparently, who was it? It was Jarvis Cocker dated Chloe Savigny at some point. Yeah. And Chloe Savigny said, that she thought that pop stars were way more famous than movie stars or any kind of star. She thought that pop stars had a different kind of fame because their fans were more passionate about them than any other Mm. kind of star. And she said driving around in the UK with with Jarvis Cocker freaked her out because kids would run along behind the car and she said, that's not the kind of fame I want. And she yeah. used that to explain why she makes quirky movies. And I was like, Interesting. 
Right, but but I mean, I think in anywhere in London right now, if Jarvis Cocker walks in the room, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, "Holy shit, he's here!" Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's living on a velvet aircraft carrier. But then again, I don't know. But then again, you can be a big star in the UK and sell fewer records than a third tier country star in the US just because of the number of people. Right? I mean, the UK's got what? 60 million people? I mean, there are 60 million people in Los Angeles. At least. 60 million people, that's just one neighborhood in Mexico City. <laughs> 